Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, Judges chapters 20 and 21, the end of our study of the book of Judges. Well, today's a little bit of a momentous day, I think, because it marks the end of the book of Judges for us. And we're going to move fairly rapidly through Judges chapters 20 and 21, as it's mostly a self-explanatory historical account of perhaps the worst atrocity committed by Hebrews that is recorded in the Bible. Our next study will be the book of Ruth. Because the time of Ruth was during the period of the Judges. Now last week we studied the gut-wrenching story of a Levite man and his unnamed concubine who lived in the hill country of Ephraim. The time frame of that story is perhaps 20 years more or less after Joshua died. The couple got into some kind of a serious argument that led to the woman leaving her husband and going home to her father that lived in Bethlehem. And after the Levite thought it all over, he decided she was worth winning back. So he journeyed the substantial distance from his home to retrieve her, if she was willing to come back. She was willing. There was a reconciliation. And so they, along with the servant that the Levite brought with him for a traveling companion, began their journey homeward and they stopped the first evening in the city of Gibah or Gibeah. Now, Gibeah was a tribal territory that belonged to Benjamin. And the Levite had the option of stopping a couple of hours earlier as they passed near the city of Jebus. All right, later it would be called Yerushalayim. Right? But because in that area, Jebus was still controlled by one of the many Canaanite peoples, he decided it would be best to keep going a little farther so that they could overnight among fellow Hebrews. Big mistake. After arriving at the city of Gibeah and no Benjamite offering the customary hospitality that, that was actually a sacred duty in those days, not just a nicety, okay, an old man that was sojourning for a while in Gibeah noticed the threesome sitting at the city gates, and so he offered his home as a safe place to stay that night. But no sooner had they gone inside did a crowd of what the Bible calls worthless men gather and then demand that the old man send out his house guest, the Levite man, so that they could have homosexual sex with him. The old man was in an impossible position. As he didn't have the means to defend himself or his hosts from this, this, this mob, as he was duty-bound to do according to Middle Eastern custom. Therefore, in an eerie reminder of the story of Lot and the city of Saddam, he offered to send out his unmarried daughter, 
as well as the Levite's concubine for them to have their way with. Well, while the old man and the Levite huddled inside in fear, all night long, these Benjamite men of Gibeah raped and otherwise tortured the concubine until later, when they were through with her, she crawled back and died on the old man's doorstep. The Levite packed her body onto one of the two donkeys he had brought with him from the hills of Ephraim and took her back to his home, their home in Ephraim. But rather than give her a proper burial, in outrage and in anger, he cut her body up into twelve pieces, sent one piece to each of the twelve tribes as a message to ask Israel what they intended to do about such a horror that has happened to this woman and as far as he was concerned to him. At the center of it all was what would Israel do about a brethren tribe, Benjamin, which has brought disgrace upon the entire Israeli nation and and spiraled out of control. The answer wasn't long in coming. That's what we're going to read about now. And to best understand the response of Israel and what was going to happen next, we're going to read all of chapters 20 and 21 consecutively and without stopping. So open your Bibles to Judges chapter 20, page 294 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. And we're going to read chapters 20 and 21, which brings us to the end of Judges. Judges chapter 20. All the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including Gilead. The community assembled with one accord before Adonai at Mitzpah. The leaders of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers armed with swords. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how was this crime committed? And the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, answered, I came to Geba, which belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, and just to stay the night. And the men in Geba attacked me and surrounded the house I was staying in at night. They wanted to kill me. But instead they raped my concubine to death. I took my concubine's body, cut it into pieces, sent them throughout all the territories belonging to Israel because they committed a shockingly obscene and degrading crime in Israel. Look, you are all people of Israel. So discuss what to do and give your advice here and now. And all the people stood up in agreement and said, None of us will go home to his tent or his house. What we will now do to Gibeah is this. We'll draw lots. We'll take men, ten men, out of each hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand to collect food for the others. When these men come, when these come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they will avenge the crime that was committed. Thus all the men of Israel joined together in complete agreement, assembled to attack the city. The tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin with this message. 
What is this crime committed by some of your people? Turn over these good-for-nothings who are in Gibat once so that we can execute them and rid Israel of such an evil. But the people of Benjamin refused to obey the order of their kinsmen, the people of Israel. Instead, the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together from their cities and went to Gibeah to fight the people of Israel. On that day, there were 26,000 men from Benjamin armed with swords, besides the inhabitants of Geba who numbered 700 specially chosen men. All of those 700 specially picked men were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The army of Israel, apart from Benjamin, numbered 400,000 men with swords. They were all experienced soldiers. The army of Israel began by going up to Bethel, where they asked God, Who should be first to go up to attack the army of Benjamin? Adonai answered, Judah first. So the army of Israel got up in the morning and set up their camp near Giva. Then the army of Israel went out to attack Benjamin and set up their battle line in front of Gibeah. But the army of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and slaughtered the army of Israel. On that day, 22,000 men fell. The people, the men of Israel, restored their morale and again positioned themselves for battle where they had been the first day. Then the army of Israel went up and cried before Adonai until evening. And they asked Adonai, Should we attack our kinsmen, the people of Benjamin, again? And Adonai answered, Attack them. So the army of Israel went out to attack the army of Benjamin the second day, but Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah the second day and slaughtered the army of Israel. 18,000 men armed with swords fell. Then the whole army of Israel, all the people, went up to Bethel and cried and sat there in the presence of Adonai. They fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to Adonai and asked Adonai what to do. The ark for the covenant of Adonai was there at that time. And Pincus, the son of uh, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it at that time and they asked, Should we still go out to battle again against our kinsmen, the people of Benjamin, or should we stop? And added, I answered, attack, because tomorrow I will hand them over to you. Israel hit some men around Gibeah, and on the third day Israel attacked the army of Benjamin, took a position against Gibeah, as they had the other times. And again the army of Benjamin went out against the people, lured away from the city, They began attacking and killing some of the people, as they had the other times. They killed about 30 men of Israel in the countryside and on the roads, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And the army of Benjamin said, they're defeated just like before. But the army of Israel said, let's run off and draw them away from the city onto the roads. All the men of Israel left their places and took up a battle position at Baal Tamar, while the other men of Israel burst out of their hiding places at Mareh Geba. 10,000 men chosen out of Israel came over to attack Gibeah, and the combat was intense. But the army of Benjamin didn't know that they were about to be defeated. For Adonai routed Benjamin in Israel's presence. That day the army of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin, all of whom carried swords. And the people of Benjamin realized they had been beaten. The men of Israel, trusting the ones they had put in place to ambush Benjamin, gave ground 
to the men of Benjamin. Then the men who had been lying in wait rushed in on Gibeah, drew their swords, and they destroyed the city. The army of Israel and the ambushers had agreed that as a signal they would make a huge cloud of smoke rise from the city, at which time the men of Israel would turn back. And when this happened, Benjamin began to attack. They killed about 30 of Israel's men and said, clearly we're defeating them again, just like in the first battle. But when the smoke signal began rising from the city, the men of Benjamin looked behind them, and they saw the whole city was going up in smoke. Then as the men of Israel reversed direction, those of Benjamin were overcome with terror. When they saw that disaster had come upon them, they turned their backs on the men of Israel, and they made for the road to the desert, but the battle followed them. And those who came out of the city destroyed them at the rear. They surrounded the men of Benjamin, chased them, trampled them down across from Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them experienced soldiers. They turned and fled toward the desert to the rock of Rimon. 5,000 of them were killed on the roads. They followed them to Gidom, killed another 2,000. Thus the total number who, of, uh, from Benjamin who fell that day was 25,000 experienced sword-bearing soldiers. But 600 turned and fled towards the desert to the rock of Ramon and lived there for four months. The men of Israel turned back on the people of Benjamin and killed them with the sword. The entire city, the cattle, everything they found. Moreover, they set on fire all the cities they encountered. Chapter 21. The men of Israel had sworn in Mitzpah that none of them would let his daughter marry a man from Benjamin. The people came to Bedel and stayed there before God till evening, crying and weeping, and they said, Adonai, why has this come about in Israel? Why should there be today in Israel one tribe missing? The next day the people got up early and built an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people of Israel asked, Who among the tribes of Israel did not come up to assemble before Adonai? For they had made a great oath to put to death whoever didn't come up to Adonai at Mitzpah. The people of Israel became sorry for Benjamin, their brother, and said, Today one tribe has been cut off from Israel. How are we going to obtain wives for those who remain alive, since we've sworn by Adonai that we won't let our daughters marry them? Then they asked, who from the tribes of Israel had not come up to Adonai at Mitzvah and found that none had come from Yavesh Gilead to the camp where the assembly was? Since when the people were counted, none of the inhabitants of Yavesh Gilead were found there, so the gathering sent 12,000 warriors there and ordered them, Go, put the people who live in Yavesh Gilead to death with the sword, including the women and children. Completely destroy every man and every woman who has had sex with a man. And among the inhabitants of Yavesh Gilead, they found 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole gathering sent a message proclaiming peace to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon. So Benjamin returned at that time. And the people of Israel gave them the women they had kept alive of the women from Yavesh Gilead. But those weren't enough for them. The people were still sorry for Benjamin because Adonai had made a division among the tribes of Israel. 
And the leaders of the assembly asked, What do we do for those who still don't have wives, inasmuch as all the women of Benjamin have been killed? They said, There has to be a way to help the survivors preserve Benjamin's inheritance so that a tribe will not be eliminated from Israel. Yet, we can't give them our daughters as wives. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be whoever gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, Look, look, each year there's a festival in honor of Adonai and Shiloh, north of Babel, on the east side of the road that goes up from Babel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. They ordered the men of Benjamin, Go, hide in the vineyards and keep watch. And if the girls of Shiloh come out to do their dances, then come out of the vineyards and each of you catch for himself a wife from the Shiloh girls. And then go on to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or brothers come and complain to us, we'll say to them, Give them as a personal favor to us. Because we didn't take wives for each of them in battle. See, you didn't give them to them. That would have made you guilty of breaking your oath. So the men of Benjamin did this. They took wives for themselves from the girls who were dancing as many as they needed. They carried them off, went back to the land of their inheritance, rebuilt the cities and lived in them. The people of Israel then left that place. Each man returned to his tribe and family, and each man went out from there to the land he had inherited. At that time, there was no king in Israel. A man simply did whatever he thought was right. Verse 1 says that all the people of Israel answered the call to do something about the murder of the Levite's concubine by some wicked Benjamites. It also makes the point that despite the tension that existed between the two and a half tribes who uh, elected to make their homes on the east side of the Jordan um, and the nine and a half who had entered the promised land with Joshua and settled there like they were supposed to, the warriors from Gilead, which is this area right here, also responded to the call. Now Gilead was technically a specific area occupied by the tribes of Gad and Manasseh. They were in the Transjordan. And the writer, or better editor, of the book of the Judges uses the term from Dan to Beersheba to mean all Israel. Now, this makes the subtle point, by the way, that this narrative was written after Dan migrated to the north of Israel and conquered the city of Laish. Because there is a constant mention of the phrase, at that time there was no king in Israel, it's also obviously making the point in relation to a time that Israel did have a king. So, this was very likely written during the eras of King Saul or David or Solomon. Now let me reiterate that it was Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin who wanted to homosexually gang rape 
the Levite man, and then accepted his concubine to somewhat assuage their perverted sexual appetites. And they weren't satisfied until they killed her in the process. But, you know, I find it equally appalling that the Levite's response to all this, which was to butcher his concubine's corpse, was apparently considered justifiable when in fact the Levite ought to have been prosecuted for such a ghoulish dismembering of her. Okay? But such was the condition of Israel at that time. And generally throughout the whole period of the judges that there's utterly no hint of objection to what he did. Verse 2 explains that 11 of the tribes gathered at Mitzpah. This was considered a holy convocation for the purpose of engaging in a kind of holy war, even though we can't really give it an official holy war status. And thus, we see the Hebrew words used in this passage to describe it as a kahal ha'edah, meaning the congregation of the people. Now this phrase is generally reserved for a gathering of the people for the purpose of worshiping God. 400,000 armed men showed up. Now this is further proof of the very early date of this event, even though it wasn't written about until maybe 300 years or so later. Because Israel still had this sense of unity about it. A holdover from the very recent days of Joshua. And as you've already learned from reading about the Shoftim, the judges of Israel, during their day that the Bible kind of begins with Othniel, Israel was very divided. And each tribe generally cared only for themselves. Now the tribal prince of Benjamin had no doubt also received a portion of the concubine's body in expectation that he and his tribe would want to join their brethren brethren in punishing these wicked men of Gibeah. But the leadership of Benjamin chose to harbor the murderers instead. So of course, they knew what was going on that all the other tribes were gathering for war. Now once everyone was gathered at Mitzpah, the tribal elders of Israel asked the aggrieved Levite man to tell his sad story to them as a group so they could all have the same information. Not surprisingly, he embellished and lied. He told them the men of Gibeah were out to kill him, which wasn't the case at all. So things kind of started off on a bad footing. And verse 8 is essentially making the, the making of an oath before God by the 11 tribes. This is important. Okay? And this oath was that they would not return to their homes without taking retribution on Benjamin. Now as an aside, what the scripture actually says is they will not return to their oel and baith. Oel means tent. Baith means dwelling or house and inherently means something made out of stone or brick or, or, or wood. Thus again proof of how soon after entering Canaan this event occurred because many of Israel had not yet conquered their territories fully. They were still living in goatskin tents like they used during their 
Exodus journey, while others of them had indeed moved into cities and were living in stone homes. Well, apparently a protracted battle with Benjamin was anticipated because the first thing the leaders of the 11 tribes did was to assign 10% of their men the task of establishing, establishing a supply line to the fighters. Benjamin was already known as among the best and most fierce and stubborn warriors of Israel. And the 11 tribes were not about to take him for granted just because of the large advantage in numbers that they enjoyed. But Benjamin had another advantage that we're going to explore shortly. Terrain. Now without doubt, this grand meeting at Mitzpah was but a formality as they would never have mustered these huge armies and marched them there if it was only to have a discussion. Their collective minds were already made up before they ever left home. But since the goal was to punish the guilty, the next thing that happened was that runners were sent to various of the clan leaders within Benjamin with the message to hand over the men of Gibeah for proper justice, which would have been execution. But instead, Benjamin refused to invoke justice on their own, as they should have, since what those men of Gibeah did was patently against the laws of Torah, and they had committed a capital crime. But neither would they allow the 11 tribes to do it for them. So instead, they chose to fight on behalf of their brethren, on behalf of these degenerates, for no other reason than they were fellow Benjamites. So here we see another side to tribalism. And a little later on in this story, yet another decision is going to be made to illustrate that ancient mindset. It is a, that above all, tribes remain loyal to themselves. And they do not easily accept outside interference, even from a brother tribe. Okay. Although tribes that are always divided up into clans would regularly have blood feuds going on amongst themselves, God forbid an outsider wanted to inject their influence into the matter. Okay. Just watch the evening news about the goings-on in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Jordan, other places in the Orient where tribalism still rules, and you're going to see this exact pattern and mindset dominating to this very day. It is nigh on to impossible for Westerners to wrap our minds around this foundational cultural aspect of the Middle East. But we can learn all about it simply by proper study of the Bible because it is the same then as it is now. Okay. Understand, it is Islam's intent to return the entire globe to tribal governance. So, if you still think it wise to consider peace through appeasement with Islam, you might want to realize the end result first. Now, Benjamin gathered their fighting men for war, 26,000 of them. And remember, a fighting man was generally regarded to be somebody between roughly the ages of 20 to 50. 
those younger and older men of Benjamin were not counted in this 26,000. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 14 begins with what's actually a pretty poor translation in our complete Jewish Bibles. It says there that the people of Benjamin gathered and went to Gibeah to fight. What it says in Hebrew is that the Bain, the Bain, B-E-N, of Benjamin gathered and went to fight. In the passage just before it, it also alludes to the Bain of Israel. The thing is, is that while it certainly makes sense just the way it is, what this really is, the children of Israel or the bane of Israel, it's an expression. And used in this context, saying the children of Benjamin didn't mean all the people of Benjamin, nor did it merely mean sons, and certainly it didn't mean uh, non-adults. Rather, the idea is that these are the representatives of Benjamin or earlier representatives of Israel. They don't constitute all. In fact, it is an endearing saying. It just means that these representatives of this tribe are doing a service on behalf of their tribe or their, their nation. That's the idea. Okay. Now, in addition to the 26,000 fighters of Benjamin, were 700 Benjamite men of the city of Gibeah, many who would have been the criminals who killed that concubine, giving them a combined force of 26,700 soldiers. Now, the additional reference to the 700 left-handed stone slingers were, to, were only to a special group of Benjamites within that 26,700. Now, now, this is no small thing. Those 700 stone slingers were deadly accurate. And the stronger men among them could sling stones that weighed up to a pound at 90 miles an hour. Now, it's helpful to notice that the 400,000 soldiers of the combined army only represented two-thirds of the size of the available army under Joshua. So they had reserves if they needed them. But Benjamin was outnumbered almost 20 to 1. So I imagine such a need wasn't even remotely contemplated by the military leaders of Israel. Well, with the battle lines and forces set and described, the assault began. But not before the army of Israel went up to Bethel to consult with God. Now first, the entire army would not have moved to Bethel. Only the commanders. But second, why go to Bethel at all? What's the point? Well, there's a lot of disagreement among scholars over this matter. However, as time goes on, evidence has mounted to explain it. And it has to do with the location of the wilderness tabernacle at that time. When Israel first arrived in Canaan, the tabernacle was set up in Shechem. A while later, it was moved to Shiloh. We say Shiloh. But only briefly before, it was moved to Bethel. And after some time, it was moved back to Shiloh. 
And it remained there for several hundred years. So we've arrived at the point in time in this particular story of the era when the sanctuary and therefore the central religious authority, the priesthood, was located in Bethel. Thus we see in verse 18 that the main reason they went to Bethel was to inquire of God about how to proceed in battle. This is something they remembered from the days of Joshua. That's what the people of Joshua did. So it says that they asked God how they should proceed and the answer to their question was Judah, you go first. But did God actually speak his answer to somebody in this situation audibly? No, he did not. It was the Urim and Tumim as carried and operated by the high priest that were consulted and the two sacred stones indicated God's will in this. We don't know exactly how those stones indicated the divine answer. Possibly it was by lot. Maybe they just put them in a bag and drew one out. There's tales, unsubstantiated of course, that maybe one of the two stones actually glowed. But in no way did they speak God's voice or was any other audible means employed that at least it's recorded. So in this story, when we see such responses as Judah go first or go up and attack again, it's not that these are Yehovah's words, it's that this is the indicated result of the questions that were asked to the Urim and Tumim stones. Now having received their answer, the army attacked Gibeah with Judah in the lead. They were slaughtered, presumably with Judah taking the brunt of the casualties. 22,000 of the Israelite army soldiers were killed. How could Benjamin do such damage against such great odds? Well, for one thing, the terrain worked for them. Gibeah is located in hilly country. And thus it favored the defense. No matter how many soldiers Israel had available, only a small portion of them could approach the city to assault it while the bulk of the forces had to kind of wait their turn as replacements for the fallen. But no soldier is anxious to throw himself in battle crawling over the strewn bodies of his comrades so they skulked away in defeat that first day. Well, the leaders of the army went back to Bethel, to the wilderness tabernacle, And they wept and they beseeched Jehovah for the reasons why they failed, given that they seemed to have his backing and they followed his instructions. So they again consult God by means of the high priest and those two stones and asked if they should attack again. And the answer was yes. And after regrouping, they prepared for another attack upon Gibeah. Even though it says that this occurred on the second day, it doesn't mean, by the way, the day after the first battle. It just means the second day of battling. The second time they went to battle. Several days, even weeks could have passed between the first and second battles. Well, they were defeated again. And Israel lost an additional 18,000 men. They had now lost 10% of their forces. 40,000 men of Israel had died already. So in verse 26, we find Israel, Israel trudging back up to Bethel, Tails between their legs, just dismayed and confused, but not quite ready to give up. 
This time they took a little different approach to inquiring of God. They fasted. They offered sacrifices. And then again asked God what to do. The answer was unequivocal. Attack Gibeah one more time. But the Lord communicates that this time it's going to be different. This time Benjamin will fall to the sword. The Israelites were contrite before God. They now understood that repentance and humility were needed to properly approach the creator of all things. And that numbers alone never guarantee success. So they switched tactics. And instead of a direct frontal assault upon Gibeah, they planned an ambush, much in the same mold as was used in the battle for Ai, as led by Joshua some years earlier. And here we find that the war priest of Israel was none other than Phineas. You will see it in our complete Jewish Bibles as Pincus. It's the same name. The Pincus is just more the Hebrew pronunciation. Phineas, Pincus, the, the grandson of Aaron, whose resolute action of using a spear to run through that Midianite woman and Hebrew man who were having intercourse inside the camp of Israel, killing them both, saved Israel from any further of God's wrath. Phineas' bold action, when everybody else apparently was paralyzed, atoned for Israel's rebellion before the Lord ended a divine plague that had already killed 24,000. This Phineas is one or more one of the more unrecognized Old Testament Bible heroes. Okay. He had taken a lead role in the war against Midian and acted as a mediator during a time when the two and a half tribes that lived at the east of the Jordan were suspected of disunity and Apostasy due to the erection of a memorial altar. Interestingly, like Moses, he had been given an Egyptian name for some reason. See, his real name was Pe-Nehasi. Pe-Nehasi. And it's, that's the Egyptian pronunciation. And very interestingly, it means Nubian. Or, more appropriate for this situation, it means the dark-skinned one. Just as Moses' Egyptian, given Egyptian name was Mose, later was Hebraized to Moshe, and then later Englishized to Moses, so Pe-Nehasi was later Hebraized to uh, Penechas, and then we say Phineas in English. You with me on that? Bottom line... Phineas was a noticeably darker-skinned man than the average olive-skinned Hebrew. Well, the third attack upon Gibeah commences just like the previous two. The Benjamites assumed that since the method of assault seemed to look like the same thing, they kind of expected the same result. What they didn't know was that this was a trick. And when it appeared that the Israelites were being routed, they turned and ran, and the warriors of Benjamin gave chase. Now, once they were a fair distance outside of Gibeah's defensive walls, a hidden company of Israelites 
stole into the city, captured and burned it. And when the Israelites who were running away looked back and saw the thick black clouds of smoke rising upward, that was their signal for them to turn around and begin attacking the Benjamites who were pursuing them. With their city captured and caught in a vice between two forces, the army of Benjamin was doomed. 18,000 men of Benjamin died defending Gibeah. The rest ran to try and save their lives. But the warriors of Israel were ready for that. And they easily caught up to them and killed them. 5,000 fled towards a place called the Rock of Ramon. Ramon means pomegranate tree. Okay. And they were slaughtered on the road. Another 2,000 headed for the city of Gidom. And they were also killed. 600 made it to the rock of Ramon and they hid out there for four months and they survived. Well, after this, the Israeli army executed every last man, woman, and child and even all the livestock. Anything, anybody that had anything to do with Gibeah. The tribe of Benjamin lay on the verge of complete extinction. Well, some time passed. And the heat of battle was over. And the victorious Israelites had some time to think over what had transpired. And they fell into grief over it. They reflected on what the results of their actions meant for the future of Israel. And they repented. Even though it was Benjamin who necessitated this war by their their outrageous position of defending these deranged men of Gibeah who had turned to homosexuality and behaved exactly as the heathen of Sodom. And so it, it must have seemed reasonable that just as God annihilated Sodom, the same justice should come upon Gibeah. Israel thought, you know, maybe we've gone too far. Now we've talked about the issue of swearing oaths and vows in God's name and how dangerous of an undertaking that is. We moderns like to think otherwise, but we really don't take these oaths and vows all that seriously. But to the ancient, it was unthinkable to violate an oath or a vow because the consequence was probably going to be devastating and long-lasting. So, making a rash oath or a vow is a doubly bad idea. But Israel now realized that they had done just that before they had even shot one arrow in anger at Benjamin. As the Israelite force of 400,000 gathered in Mitzpah in war council before heading towards Gibeah, They had made a vow that sounded good, but now it faced them with a terrible dilemma. The vow they made was that nobody from the 11 tribe coalition would ever allow his daughter to marry a Benjamite man. The problem was that a mere 600 men remained in all of Benjamin. And with no women to bear children, the line of Benjamin was going to end soon. 
As bad as that sounds to us, it was horrific to the mind of the ancient Hebrew that one of Jacob's sons would lose his place among the family of Hebrews was too awful for them to even contemplate. In tribal society, it's one thing for interrelated tribes to war and kill amongst themselves in order to punish or even achieve dominance. It's quite another to completely kill off an entire bloodline, and that was usually avoided at all costs. Well, when the victorious Israelites realized that the utter demise of Benjamin was a very real probability now, they went before God, back up in Bethel, and they wept and they asked for forgiveness, as well as trying to understand why God might allow such a thing to happen. They offered sacrifices of repentance to Jehovah and they sought a solution. You see, they absolutely could not break their vow of refusing to give Benjamin their daughters for marriage and childbearing. So how do they keep Benjamin from extinction? Verse 7 sums up the problem very well. How are we going to obtain wives for those who remain alive since we've sworn by Adonai that we won't let our daughters marry them? They find an answer to the problem in a very convoluted an unexpected way. <clears throat> and it starts with Israel's search to find out <clears throat> if any clan of Hebrews had failed to show up to contribute to the war effort. It turns out that the people of the city of Jabesh Gilead, this means the people who lived in the city of Jabesh, in the territory of Gilead, east of the Jordan, didn't answer the call. <clears throat> now understand, that in itself was a violation of a much earlier and perhaps more fundamental oath. And that oath was that all of Israel was united under, the, under God and the laws of Moses and they were thus duty bound to act together as one during times of crisis. Jabesh, Yabesh, were traitors to God and to Israel in their eyes. Not only that, at the time of the war council up in Mitzpah, an oath was, an oath was sworn that the punishment for whomever didn't participate in the war against Benjamin was that they were to be killed. So a strike force of 11,000 Israelites was sent across the Jordan River to take vengeance on this city. <clears throat> everyone was to die except for girls of childbearing age who were virgins. These girls were to be captured and brought back to Shiloh. Turns out there were 400 of them. A plan was forming to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. First, to execute those of Yavesh, in order to satisfy the vow they'd made of killing those who refused to participate, but second, to find wives for the remaining 600 men of Benjamin. These virgin girls of Yabesh would provide a pretty good start to remedy that problem. Let's back up just a little bit. <clears throat> In reality, the 600 men were not all the remained of Benjamin. 
some number of elderly, maybe some infants and very young children were remained, uh, remained alive. That's, that's pretty certain. But the key is that these 600 men, those 600 survivors, were those of an age who were still able, or were finally old enough to, impregnate women. And the reason that the virgin girls of childbearing age were captured was that by being virgins, it made them eligible and desirable as wives. And then also gave them many years in which to bear as many children as possible. Now let me show you another interesting thing. Look at verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 11. It says in verse 11, that the order was given to completely destroy every man, woman, and child of Yavesh Gilead, except the virgins, of course. Now, what is usually translated, like in our complete Jewish Bibles, as completely destroy, is actually, in Hebrew, the word harem. That might ring a bell with some of you. It really ought to sound familiar, because... In other places of the Old Testament, it's translated as ban. See, harem means to destroy something for the purpose of giving it to God. It's a holy war term. It means, and it indicates that since the true commander of a holy war is God himself, then the spoils of war go to him. But how does one give the spoils of war to God? He says it's in the form of a burnt offering. Thus the spoils must be destroyed and burned. In this way, it is dedicated, it is banned to God, and at the same time the people can't partake in it because it's been destroyed. So to the Israelites, they saw that what they were about to do to those people of Yabesh Gilead as a holy endeavor... And thus for them, the killing of the people was under the laws of Harem. It was holy to their minds because it was the carrying out of an oath made to God to kill everybody who refused to participate in the war with Benjamin. Now, was this a good thing before the Lord? Hardly. It was just another case of men making a rash vow And they would rather follow through with it, no matter what the consequences to others might be, than not following through and accepting the consequences of their own sin of breaking that rash vow. The 400 virgins of Yabesh were given to the lone male survivors of Benjamin, but that still left them 200 wives short. What to do? Well, they came up with another clever plan. See, there there was this festival to the Lord each year in Shiloh. And lots of women went to it. The young girls, especially the virgins, participated by dancing in the festival. Some leaders of the Israelites went to the leaders of the 600 remaining Benjamites, 200 still without wives, and told them if they go up to Shiloh, at festival time and hide, then when the virgins came out to dance, they could pounce on them and cart them off. The Israelites would be sure there would be no interference. And the men of Benjamin would be free to remove these girls back to their allotted territory of Benjamin. 
Now what happens when the fathers and the other male family members who aren't wise to this all right, come to the leadership council of Israel and complain about the theft of their daughters and they seek justice? Well, they would be told to just do the leadership a favor. Just don't react. Okay? Just let it be. Because in the end, it was best for Israel. Besides, see, this way, these men who lost their daughters wouldn't actually be breaking their vow to God not to give to Benjamin any daughter of Israel because the girls weren't given, they were kidnapped. It's just they chose not to go and try and retrieve them. Wow. It's no wonder so many Jews become lawyers, huh? Well, let me point out something that might go unnoticed, but it's important. The children born to the tribe of Benjamin from here forward were mixed. The 400 women of Gilead were mostly from the tribe of Manasseh, but Gilead also consisted of some sizable populations of Gad and even a little bit of Reuben. The remaining 200 women who were taken from Shiloh were some combination of members of the other ten tribes. So even though the fathers of the next generation of Benjamites were generally themselves Benjamites by blood, not one mother of their children was a Benjamite by heredity. Now I pointed out before that Israel is hardly a genealogically pure race with all genes coming from Abraham. Even Jacob, before he went to Egypt, acquired probably the largest part of his family during his stay at Shechem. It happened when his sons went on a raid of revenge for the rape of their sister Dinah. And in the process, they killed all the males of Shechem and they captured all the females. See, in tribal society, those foreign females would rapidly be assimilated into their captor's tribe. The women of Shechem were Hivites. They weren't Hebrews. So the family of Jacob was of a mixed race very early on. Then in Egypt there was much intermarriage. And thus the Torah tells us that a huge number of non-Hebrews, it was called a mixed multitude, followed Israel on their exodus. And here we see drastic action taken on purpose by Israel to save the tribe of Benjamin that resulted in all future Benjamites after the war of Gibeah being of mixed tribal blood of other Israelite tribes. No modern day Hebrew could ever possibly speak of purity of bloodlines of his own tribe. Let alone going back to Abraham or even Jacob. Rather, the issue is of declared allegiance to the God of Israel. Just like it is for us, both as Gentile and Jewish believers in Messiah Yeshua. One final thing, and we'll be done with the book of Judges. In the time of King Saul, we're going to find a very interesting relationship between King Saul and the people of Gilead. When Ammon, 
threatened the people of Gilead, they turned to Saul for help. Later would be the men of Gilead who risked their lives to go recover the bodies of Saul and his sons as their corpses hung on the walls of Bethshan. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And so we see how and why the tribe of Benjamin had a special bond with the people of Gilead. In point of fact, they were closely related by blood. And it all happened as an aftermath of the war with Benjamin. Okay. The final words of the book of Judges ends most appropriately with, At that time there was no king in Israel. Every man simply did what he thought was right. You know, I pray that we see that just as God was showing Israel that they needed a king, so do we need a king. And his name is Yeshua. Unfortunately, we are today reliving the time of the judges. The state of Judeo-Christianity is as it was in the days of Othniel, Deborah, and Samson with every man doing what is right in our own hearts. Doing deeds that seem pious and righteous outwardly, comfortable to us inwardly, but paying little heed to the actual word of God. This concludes our study of the book of Judges. Next up, the book of Ruth.